2: Vanessa Wa's novel, Forbidden City, opens in San Francisco's Chinatown, with a character preparing herself for work. She may just be another person to the tourists and even residents of the city's most famous neighborhood, but May bears a secret about her life in China, one she keeps close. She's not alone in that, as Wa writes, Far from home, in the city we call Gold Mountain. Every peasant has a chance to transform into nobility, to have served as brave soldiers or the right hand of the highest commanders. Our imaginations give us what life never could. And Vanessa Waugh's imagination has given us an unusual, special book as it unspooled on the page over the last 15 years. She joins us here to talk about Forbidden City and to share at least some of May's secrets with us. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. It's great to have you back.
3: Thanks for having me on, Alexis.
2: <laughs> so, this book opens with May living in San Francisco's Chinatown on the day of Mao's death. Can you just introduce us to your main character, May?
3: So May is a young woman from the countryside who becomes uh, the confidant, protege, and lover of Chairman Mao, um, and eventually a poster child for the Cultural Revolution. But the book opens uh, with—10 years later, as as you mentioned, on uh, the day of the chairman's death. And that's when she's been in hiding, but his death is an opportunity for a personal reckoning. Mm -hmm. And— you
2: came to know Chinatown and its places as a reporter, too, right? Did you encounter a character like this or or was it more this idea of people coming all with their own stories and you crafted this backstory?
3: Well, I'm the American-born daughter of Chinese immigrants. So I not only know about Chinatown um, uh, from growing up and uh, You know, going to the dim sum restaurants and the shops, but also as a journalist and encountering people who lived above the retail level, who lived on the second, third and fourth floor. And I was always struck by the stories that so many of them carried with them, that in some ways their lives were anonymous to the mainstream, but yet epic in their own way. Um, and I recall uh, interviewing someone who worked at one of these dim sum restaurants, and then she I and mean, she'd become a labor organizer. But she mentioned she'd taken part in in the Cultural Revolution and in protests um, in her youth, and and what a exciting and idealistic time it was for her.
4: Mm.
2: We're talking with novelist and San Francisco columnist Vanessa Waugh. Her new novel is Forbidden City. And we'd love to hear from you. What did your What did the members of your family hold on to or hide when they came to the U.S. from another country? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So... In in the book, you write in that framing opening chapter still set in Chinatown that many lies are born from necessity. Some of us arrive in America with false identities and fake papers. Others alter their ages on their paperwork. And one of the interesting things is it feels like the intent is almost less dissembling and more reinvention. That There's this opportunity to kind of wipe the slate clean and try be be a new person.
3: Exactly. And it's also about translating what's not it's impossible to translate for example I know people because of the lunar calendar their birthday is on uh, is on the lunar New Year Eve uh, and but they that's not but then they choose uh, December 31st as their Western birthday because otherwise the the birthdays don't match up mm-hmm. or they pick a new name for themselves um, and it's not an alias it's their new American self mm-hmm
2: so as your book spools out, I think you know it might be I think we called it historical fiction, but it's really something new, right? How do you think about it? Do you think of this as being a, a book that like kind of cleaves tightly to the historical record, or is sort of an alternative to it?
3: Well, for me. Uh research. Uh, I did lots of research on the book. I, I traveled to China. I read countless memoirs and historical accounts. But all that research was the floor and not the ceiling to my imagination um, because I was focused on May, someone who wouldn't end up in the historical record, who would perhaps merit a footnote or, or even less than a footnote. And that's where uh, fiction can really flourish, where the official record ends. Mm. So after
2: we are introduced to Mei in San Francisco Chinatown, we kind of cut back to China in 1965. Where's Mei at that point and what's she doing?
3: She is the third daughter of the lowliest daughter in a lowly family in a village in the countryside west of Beijing. And she's out in the fields one day with her sisters working when a party official arrives. And he lines up the young women of the village who are in one of the the dance troops. And she maneuvers her way into being selected for a mysterious duty in the capital. And it's important to understand that she's been raised on these stories of model revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, born in 1949, she's uh, the same age as the People's Republic of China. And so she's um, ho- wholly idealistic, born after the revolution, and yet wanting to serve the revolution.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and what happens? Does she she gets swept out of the village, basically.
3: Yes. And she arrives in the capital and she uh, enters a, a dance troupe. And she is learning ballroom dancing. She's wearing high heels for the first time. She's stumbling and trying to—and uh, instantly the rivalries begin with the other young women in the troupe. Um, but she, May is a survivor from— and she's resourceful. She thinks on her feet, and she'll, you know, she does what she can. And how she survives that first day is how she survives at the chairman's side uh, for next year, and and then in the, you know, the span of the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that part about the troop? Is that grounded in Mao's real history?
3: Yes. Um, about uh, well, to back up, in 1937, Agnes Medley traveled. She's an American journalist, and she traveled to Yan'an, a rebel stronghold, um, to cover uh, Mao and. She taught Mao and other top leaders how to fox shot and square dance, (laughs) if you can believe it. Um, And in the decades that followed, he had these cultural work troops of young women who would partner with him um, not only on the dance floor, but also in the bedroom.
2: And how did you come upon that history?
3: About a decade and a half ago, I was watching a documentary about China, and up pops this photo of Chairman Mao surrounded by giggling young women and they're some of them are in plaid they lo- almost look like bobby socksers and that's you know i learned about his these these dance troops but there really wasn't much um the chairman's personal physician wrote a memoir in which he says oh for these young women um it was the most exhilarating exciting experience of their lives and you know that's i knew it had to be more complicated than that
2: mm. You know, I would find it pretty terrifying to try try to write a historical novel set in Mexico. You know, my yeah, dad's yeah, from especially one with this kind of level of daily life detail. But was it kind of pleasurable even to spend time in the the country where your parents grew up?
3: Yes, I, I mean, I think there's always whether the novel is historical or not, um, you can, and especially if there's a character as iconic. As Chairman Mao, whose huge portrait is hanging in Tiananmen Square, you can approach uh, his character, May's character, through the body, through the visceral. So. That's anything from the fact that when I was a freshman at Stanford, ballroom dancing was one of the most popular classes on campus. It still is, (laughs) if you can believe it. Um, So I know what it's like to be in a large ballroom to that hushed anticipation, that feeling of bodies um, spinning through space or... In Forbidden City, it also depicts this famous swim that Mao took that was a precursor to the Cultural Revolution. And I, too, became um, a big swimmer in my 20s after I injured my foot um, uh, running. And so you never know what experiences that you as a person might have that you can bring to your writing that can help you um, enter the body and mind of your characters.
2: Mm. Did it make you feel closer to your family?
3: Yes, especially when, say, for example, I was um, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. I went to China in 2004 writing about the rise of modern China. And I was one of these villages, and one of these grannies walked out buttoning up her cardigan. And it was the same area that my grandmother had been a child. And I almost, and she said something to me, man manzo, like walk slowly. Like she, it was the sort of thing my grandmother would have said. And you can't help but think about. Uh, those parallel lives uh, about of you know what if there hadn't been war what if um, that branch of my family had had stayed uh, just so many things to to and I, I think actually um, I became a writer in terms of figuring out the mysteries of family that so much uh, my parents were focused on the future preferring not to talk about the painful past and it was through fiction that I could begin to explore these times that were so formative in their lives.
2: Mm. Had they received the work?
3: Well, um, I think they're very proud of me, um, but they, you know, they were worried just, you know, I quit my job um, as a daily news reporter to go get my MFA, and I think they were scratching their heads like, this is a good job. Why are you running off to write a book? Um, and, you know, they kept asking, like, is your agent going to sell the book? Um, and I said, well, she, she's trying. Um, but I, I do remember when Ziziva Magazine, you know, in San Francisco mm-hmm. published the first chapter, um, my dad bought a two-year subscription to Ziziba because he wanted to support me.
2: You know, the other fascinating thing about a book book that you work on over time like this, because as I understand it, it took about 15 years, right?
3: Uh, Yeah, yeah, 14 years.
2: Yeah. It just kind of spans cultural eras, like, you know, began in the Bush administration, ends post-Trump, or alternatively began under Hu Jintao, appears under Xi Jinping. How did the book shift and change as the world around it continue to to morph and become different and maybe darker.
3: Right. Well, it was not, not only was there so much global history and uh, things like the rise of the Me Too movement and the loneliness of the pandemic um, and issues of bodily autonomy that are, are, you know, have returned to the news now, but there was a lot of personal history going on in my life as well. My beloved father passed away during that time. Um, I gave birth to my twin sons who are now 10 and a half. And all of that uh, shaped me as a person, as a writer. Um, and though those huge events are anachronistic to my novel, um, they still uh, shape my perspective. And um, it's, it's just been eerie to kind of realize that um, what, you know, people have said this novel seems so timely and it just means that these issues are long running and and, and intractable, like the rise of demagoguery and and um, the um, attacks on on different groups. All of that, um, the, as you know, the past is never as distant as it seems. Yeah,
2: we're talking with novelist and San Francisco Chronicle columnist Vanessa Waugh. Her new novel is Forbidden City. We'd love to hear from you. What did the members of your family who came to the U.S. What did they hold on to or hide? When they immigrated to this country, you can give us a call 866-733-6786. Maybe you have something that you've been holding on to or hiding uh, since you arrived from from another place. The number is 866-733-6786. You can get in touch Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions for Vanessa Wah to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring in another guest to join us with uh, Vanessa here this morning. Mei Chai is an associate professor in the Department of Creative Writing at San Francisco State University and author of Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much. So, Mei maybe you could
2: talk to us about how you see Vanessa's novel in the context of other recent Chinese-American fiction.
5: Um, I'd love to. I'm a big fan of Vanessa's work. I've had her visit my classes in the creative writing program at San Francisco State, and the students just always gain so much from her insight in the writing process. Um, what I find really exciting about what Vanessa is doing is it's not just a traditional historical novel, but she's really re envisioning and reimagining history and thinking about how um, to center forgotten or erased voices. And I think that's kind of like what C. Pam Zhang did with how much of these hills is gold. Mm. And I'm seeing with other Chinese American authors. And I think this is a really exciting moment for literature.
2: You know, would you actually even call it like an alternative history, like an alt history of, of China?
5: Um, it is in some ways in that um, it's, it's historically accurate in its depiction of like the larger events, but by centering uh, a completely traditionally marginalized voice. And by making that voice center to all of, the, of these events, we kind of see it's an alternate because we're saying this character could have been central and could have been the instigating voice for so many of these, uh, these moments. Like there's a really exciting banquet scene. I'm not gonna give away the plot, don't <laughs> worry Vanessa. Um, but where we realize Chairman Mao got some of his ideas from this young woman. Um, so she's not just being used, and she's not just a body, right, on the page. We also see her mind and thoughts and her background coming from the countryside is being something that's actually positive.
2: Yeah, You know, Vanessa, you, you referenced the Me Too movement, and I feel like this book gets at some really complex power dynamics between young women and older men who are exploiting them. How, how did you think about trying to capture the nuances of that situation?
3: Well, that was one of the driving questions of the novel as I set out to write it. What does it mean for a young woman who's been raised to believe this man is a god to suddenly become a part of his inner circle, to be intimate with him? And there were some young women who say um, there was a, the real life Zhang Yufeng. She met him when she was 18 and was at his side uh, when he died. She was 31 years old. So how did she maneuver the complex politics um, of uh, Zhongnanhan, uh, of the you know country seat of power, when so many of uh, Mao's rivals fell? And so... I knew there was something to a character that could be resourceful, that had agency, despite the many limitations of, you know, culture or patriarchy that, um, you know, young women everywhere have have thoughts and actions that um, go beyond sort of seeing them as as passive or only uh, bystanders to history.
2: Did anything in the book change after the me Too movement, like did you reread the work that you'd already done and say, "You know actually, I want to rethink this part of that part, or did it feel like it it made sense in this new moment
3: well, I think the depiction of say what what happens between them in the bedroom um, had always been uh, murky, but maybe the me too movement uh, helped shape helped me to understand how to kind of uh, shade that even more." Uh, gray, how to the the push pull between them, um, and to really consider the the power dynamics. Um, I, you know, I read a number of memoirs uh, by people outside of China, but with you know these power dynamics, and as I said, they unfold you know regardless of era or or country, and really thinking about what that means um, that helped me shape uh, their their relationship.
2: Mainly mm-hmm. in sort of this kind of diasporic writing. There's kind of a reclaiming of people's histories, right, and and their their homeland.
5: Yes, I love how Vanessa's book is a it starts in Chinatown with, as she said, this character who could be completely overlooked. She's a waitress in a dim sum restaurant, and so often I think that Chinatown for like the non-Chinese. Um, diaspora. Don't think of it as being. They think of it as a touristy place, right? Where you go and you buy trinkets and you go and you have this meal. You don't necessarily think of it as a portal to this other land, to this other history. And every person there has this history and has this connection. And as she said, as a reporter, you could inter. She could interview someone, and you know, you would get this amazing historical record, and you would find how this person played this key part or was swept up by these these tides of history. And I think. She does that so well in her in her fiction.
2: Was there somebody in Chinatown that you hoped would end up reading this novel, Vanessa?
3: Well, it was quite exciting because someone the other day posted a photo from SF Chinatown Library, and my book had been selected for the Lucky Day program. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> if you, it's, it means it's like popular and in demand in the system, and that if you happen to to go through the library that day, the book is, is on offer. You can skip the, the wait list. So it, it's reaching people. I don't know if I have an ideal reader, but I do hope um, it could open conversations perhaps um, for, say, uh, families like mine where the American born or the 1.5 generation don't m- know much about that history initially, but mm-hmm. want to find out uh, how their family intersected with that history, what they think about it. And I think that's something that fiction can really do, uh, create a space for, for conversations and, and be an entry point um, for learning more about a, a time period.
2: We're talking with novelist and San Francisco Chronicle columnist Vanessa Wa about her new novel, Forbidden City, also joined by SF State's Mayle Chai. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
6: Welcome
2: back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with novelist Vanessa Wa about her new novel, Forbidden City. We're also joined by Mei Li Chai, associate professor in the Department of Creative Writing at SF State and author of Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Vanessa, I wanted to ask you about other versions of this book. Um, as I understand it, a huge chunk of this book used to be set in the sort of politics and, and uh, hum of Chinatown, and that got pulled out.
3: Yes. In the multiverse version of the novel, um, it was about 30 percent Chinatown. And there was a lot about um, divisions in homeland politics, about uh, gang warfare in the 1970s. Um, And actually, I was at UC Riverside yesterday uh, where I got my MFA and where the, you know, the first that version exists and is still in the library. So I went and I checked it out and I felt like it wasn't like seeing an old friend, but almost an old version of myself. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um,
3: And so I I realized there was, it was just, um, there was too much. There was, was, and, and uh, some of that um, material or characters um, about Chinatown did end up in my novel, A River of Stars, and in my short story collection, DC and Other Possibilities. Um, not, and so uh, and then over time, I began to realize, um, you know, with a historical fiction, it's important not to get too much into the weeds. So there were subplots written, considered and discarded. <laughs> um, and and also uh, late in the process, I realized um, sometime after the sale of the book in 2016, I realized um, who she was addressing, um, who she was telling the story to. And that added a particular urgency and poignancy. And, and once I figured that out, it almost felt like a, a key sinking into a lock and like tumblers began to turn.
2: You know, um, one of the things that 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 this whole story kind of hints at, though, is the sort of complex relationships between, you know, a local neighborhood or our city's politics And then these really global events, did you come upon that in your reporting? Maybe not even just about, you know, Chinese diaspora, but all kinds of other people.
3: Oh, definitely. Um, There's long been different conflicts over um, ancestral and adopted homeland uh, 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 politics. And even now, if you walk through Chinatown, you'll see family associations, some flying the flag of the ROC, uh, some flying the flag of the PRC, and some flying the American flag. And um, it just speaks to the ongoing nature of that divide. Um, and, I mean, we saw that at the the shooting in Laguna Woods, and we, we see that in continued discussions with Biden um, this week. So, uh, these these are very uh, often these neighborhoods, whether they're Chinese or from other diasporas, uh, they there's a there's a tug of war. Yeah.
2: maylie how have you seen that tug of war explored in other Chinese American uh, writing?
5: Oh, um, well, I think about K-Ming Chang um, and her first novel, Bestiary, which mm-hmm. is about a kind of Taiwanese immigrant Family um, told from the story of like the women, the mothers and daughters and the grandmothers. And they come from Taiwan to the United States, but they also have ties to um, mainland China, and they also have ties to the indigenous population of Taiwan. And so we see the characters and the stories moving back and forth in time and through these different histories of different types of wars and different types of um, colonization. And I think that... Um, this is a really interesting thread to explore in diasporic literature, and as Vanessa pointed out, you know, it can have um, it can have really passionate violence, even um, repercussions right in the here and now, as with the shooting we saw at the Taiwanese Christian Church. With you know, both the, the shooter and the congregants were both you know from Taiwan, but they had different sense of their own identities. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, one of the things that seems like very difficult to portray Vanessa is what it would be like, what what it's like to grow up in a different ideology, right? I mean, we all have ideologies that we've learned through time and that we kind of act out. What did you try and do to get into the head of somebody who was born, um, you know, along with Mao's victory in 1949? Like, how did you... How did you try and understand what it would be like to have been, you know, indoctrinated in that particular way?
3: Well, Forbidden City is an exploration of both villains and heroes. They are on different ends of the spectrum, but they're both flattened characters. You just know a couple instances of, say, what makes them um, a villain or what makes them a hero, and I think May's move from youthful idealism to disillusionment is her understanding of how much um, is projected on to a hero and, you know, the reality that she bumps up against when she's w- when she meets the chairman and, and it becomes um, is at his side. But it also caused me to reexamine just what say what do we learn about, mm-hmm. you know, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, exactly. and, and then the truth that Comes out later about um, who they were as men, and um, and and so that that was something I was always mindful of. That um, reckonings in a, any country are, are very difficult, especially when it involves a leader who is seen as the foundation of uh, that country.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned it earlier, but this the, the current moment where we're facing down a post row world has brought up. Many questions about bodily autonomy. This book really has a lot to say about that, right? I mean, May's body is not her own in some really crucial ways, and yet she tries to maintain control over it.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, So her mother is an herbalist. And before May leaves, she passes her uh, a bag of dong quai, which uh, in the hope in the only way she can that this could prevent a pregnancy. Um, and then later, uh, May continues to look for it when she runs out. Um, and you know, the girls in the dance troupe are also discussing different ways to keep from getting pregnant, that whisper network of women throughout time trying to protect themselves, um, you know, trying to resist despite everything being against them. And it is a question of how how can she survive? And yet that survival comes at a cost.
2: We're talking with novelist and San Francisco Chronicle columnist Vanessa Wa about her new novel, Forbidden City. We're also joined by Meili Chai, associate professor in the Department of Creative Writing at San Francisco State. Also the author of Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Love to hear from you. If your relatives lived in China during the Cultural Revolution, did they share stories of that time? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866 866-733- 733 you can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring in our first caller, Daniel from San Francisco. Welcome to the show.
4: Hey, guys. I love your show, by the way, and I'm loving this topic because I think historically women have been having to hook up basically with powerful men in order to just have any kind of equality in our world and access to succeed. There's a girl that I met on the street one day, and she grew up in a sweatshop, and she was then now designing the San Diego Aquarium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's also a movie called Hidden Figures, where you see a bunch of brown-haired, brown-eyed girls are the ones that do the math by hand, not IBM and not a bunch of white people, and get John Glenn back from space. So women, obviously, you know, we all got our name from a woman in our game from a woman said Tupac. We obviously have, owe them, you know, a debt of gratitude and respect and equality. And this does devolve all the way to the mentality that would take away the autonomy of a woman's rights, a la what they're trying to do with Roe v. Wade. Yeah, thank I'll you take for that. Your response and, off air. Yeah,
2: sure, sure. You know, Vanessa, you want Do you want to talk about that?
3: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm glad that the caller keyed into the fact that this is an issue not only about China, but throughout time and place. And uh, that's one of the pleasures of historical fiction, that not only do we learn about a different era, but it again causes us to reflect on our own present. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, the book also brings up a lot of questions about how histories are made, both like the intervention it makes in creating this history that cannot exist and has been left out, but also just that all histories, as we've kind of been talking about, are a combination of truth and myth and lies and storytelling, what's what's left in and, uh, and what's left out. What do you think May's sense of the United States is?
3: She's been raised to believe that capitalists are the wolf at the door, that they're continually going to try to uh, take down China. And I remember coming across photos of, like, um, Uncle Sam <laughs> mm-hmm. um, being, like, caricatures of Uncle Sam in China. So there is an awareness of, um, I mean, this is during the Cold War. So she has an awareness of, of the U.S. as the enemy. But but just as she begins to question uh, what, you know, the the teachings in, in her country, she then, of course, questions, like, is the enemy what I've been raised to believe?
2: Mm. We have a... Uh Fascinating comment from a listener. Laura writes, my college boyfriend's grandmother was friends with Agnes Smedley, who apparently brought ballroom dance to, to Mao. She told us that in addition to teaching Mao's troops to dance, she thought taught them to sing Red River Valley. I'd say in my own work, finding those tiny little historical moments that, that add texture to what are these huge stories, right? I mean, this is a... Mao and this particular version of China is perhaps the biggest story of the 20th century when we really look back and finding these this tiny root in feels like such a fascinating way of, of of approaching this history anew
3: oh definitely and in fact uh, agnes kept a journal of her time in Yunnan. and besides uh teaching red river valley and the ballroom dancing the other hobbies she had included gardening and rat catching <laughs> oh my
2: god really? um Let's bring in another caller, caller uh, Tom in San Leandro. Welcome. Hey, Tom, can you hear hear me? Yeah, sure can. can.
4: I just wanted to ask your authors if they've uh, read the book uh, Life and Death in Shanghai, uh, Transition at the Beginning of the Revolution, uh, somebody working for a Western company who decides to stay, uh, obviously, it's nonfiction, um, but uh, kind of witnessing this transition mm-hmm. from, um, you know, some somebody who's more of an internationalist, but everything that happens to her and her family as uh, she stayed in part because she thought the, you know, the communists, communism would do some good to the country. And then what happens to her yeah. and her family?
2: That's an interesting question. Vanessa? Yeah.
3: I, I haven't read it but I'm, I'm familiar with that genre of, of young idealists who returned from abroad um, even Mao's personal physician he was another one of these idealists who was working in Australia and wanted to come back because he felt that you know what he'd learned abroad could um, could could help
5: modernize the country and you know it, it became a nightmare mm-hmm. I'll say I have read Left, Life and Death in Shanghai. And it was, it struck a very poignant note, because it talks about how she and her family suffered, her daughter was struggled against during the Cultural Revolution, and ultimately committed suicide. And it really rang, struck home for me, because my grandmother's family suffered in that way. They, they had been, her brothers decided not to leave China in 1949. They were both doctors, they were Western educated. And they thought, we're not political, we don't care about politics, we'll stay and build the country and when the cultural revolution hit they were you know sent down to the countryside they were beaten um, their children were sent to the countryside one of my grandmother's um, aunts had her fingers crushed by the red guards and the hoods of her car because she was an ob-gyn and they considered that you know oh this is western science and so they made sure that she would never be able to deliver another baby again so those bitter stories are mm. um, are family stories too um, and what I think is really interesting about, about what Vanessa does in Forbidden City is she also shows the complexity of that. You know, she this her main character may encounters some red guards and sees their, you know, their infighting um and some of that viciousness um, on the street. And again, I won't give away any plot points, but but it's <laughs> it's it's riveting.
2: We had uh, the author, Richard White on, who you know thinks he solved the murder of who killed Jane Stanford. Um, and Built the whole show towards asking him, well, who killed Jane Stanford? And he was like, nope, sorry. <laughs> you gotta read the book. <laughs> um, uh, Carrie uh, writes, um, hearing about Vanessa's book reminds me of an academic book called Woman Between Two Kingdoms, Dara Rasami and the Making of Modern Thailand. Dara, a young girl from Chiang Mai, is sent to be wife of the king in the late 1800s. From being one of 153 wives and considered of, quote, ethnic origin, the book talks about how she influenced palace politics, fashion, and modern Thai culture. A great read by Marin author Leslie Castro uh, Woodhouse. Do you, uh, Vanessa, see your book in sort of, pan-Asian literary context, as we've seen sort of more books um, coming out by Asian-American authors? Or do you see it pre- pretty in some other tradition?
3: Well, I'm so grateful to see this narrative plenitude. Uh, Mei Lee's new book coming out later this year, Tomorrow in Shanghai. Vohin um, Vara's The Immortal King Rao. Uh, Kirsten Chen's Counterfeit, uh, which is coming out in a couple weeks. I mean, these stories couldn't be more different, and I think we just reflect how our community is not a monolith, and that our, imag- our imaginations are as vast and rich as we are as a community, or even as individuals.
2: Yeah, Mealy since your your book is coming out, how do you see your work?
5: Um, definitely, I'm so excited that there are all these. Um, there's publishers are suddenly interested in our voices, right? There was a New York Times survey that said, between, you know, for the most part of the 20th century and early, even into the 21st century, 95% of the published works by the publishers in New York, the big five, were by white authors. So I am thrilled and excited um, to be writing in dialogue with all of these different Asian American voices and tell it so we can really get nuanced now. We don't have to just tell the one history, you know, and and try to hit the main points, we can really get into little nuanced points and little care, you know, characters like one of Mao's, quote unquote, dancing girls. Right. And we don't have to explain, oh, what the cultural revolution was. We can now explain. We can now expect that the reader will understand that. I've got a story in my new collection set on a Mars colony, a Chinese Mars colony. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to explain, oh, China has this space program because I think there's enough (laughs) information that people will get it.
2: Yeah. You know, last uh, question for you, Vanessa. How did researching and writing this book change the way that you think about Mao with the personal details and and really coming to understand this period of history?
3: Well, on one hand, I understood how uh, deeply rooted uh, the Cultural Revolution was in events that preceded it. That sense, of course, that history goes back and back and back, um, the roots of the uh, great leap forward and the famine that followed and his decline, and to really understand that he was in his twilight and he was worried about his legacy and he was going to fight like hell to get back in power, even if that meant throwing the country into the turmoil for the next decade. Um, and understanding sort of the the personal, the petty, was uh, illuminated the character of, of the chairman in my novel.
2: Yeah. Miley, did reading this book change anything about your views on Mao?
5: Um, it changed my view on the present, actually, mm. um, because I mean, I just a chill went through my whole body when I was reading those sections about the the girl um, mm-hmm. looking for the don't quai herb, so that she wouldn't get pregnant because she lived in such fear. In real life, Mao was, you know, infertile. His doctor knew that, um, so they, she wouldn't get pregnant, and you, you know, by him, so she didn't have to fear. But she would fear that. And that Vanessa knew that she would fear that was suddenly made me think of our own present here in the United States. And I think that's the best historical fiction when you suddenly see your own present in a new light. And I felt like, man, this could be all of us. Right. At some point, this could be all of us looking for herbs to help, you know, um, to help each other if we don't have legal access.
2: Thank you for that. We've been talking with Meili Chai, associate professor in the Department of Creative Writing at San Francisco State and author of Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Thank you, Meili, for coming on.
5: Thank you so much. It's a great show. I'm, I'm so excited for Vanessa's book. <laughs> Forbidden City is awesome.
2: And we have also been joined by Vanessa Waugh. Her new novel is Forbidden City. Thank you for writing it and thank you for coming on, Vanessa.
3: It was such a pleasure talking to you both. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.